Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Thank you. It's a great, it's a great joy and privilege and honor to be here. Um, we do not have kangaroos in Austria, just for the record. So if you don't mind, um, as I was preparing this, I, I wrote out a manuscript, um, not really knowing who would be here, what the audience would be. Um, so I, I really don't want this to be like an academic lecture, but I thought it, it's too important a conference to just wing it. Um, and I had some thoughts that I really wanted to write down. So I'm going to read through this, but hopefully pause too. Um, and uh, occasionally I'm going to refer you to your sheet. So you, if you have your sheet in front of you, um, these there are only three quoted passages that we're going to do in this session. And when I say quote number one, you can look at number one, you know. And then you'll have um, these longer quotes in front of you. I'm going to quote some other things, too, that are shorter. Um, but um, I have three of my students in the back. Can you wave your hands? So three students made the trek up from Columbia, South Carolina. And um, they're my cheering section back there. Um, and, and actually, um, David, the middle one, is in my class, Classics of Christian Literature class, where we just finished reading the Confessions. I kind of designed the syllabus that way so I could be reading it and writing these lectures at the same time. So anyway, there is really no book quite like Augustine's Confessions. It's hard to think of a more influential book in the history, not just of the church, but of the Western world beginning with the Middle Ages. Some people say the Renaissance began on an April day in 1336 when a young Italian scholar named Francis Petrarch set out to climb a mountain in southern France with a copy of Augustine's Confessions in his backpack. At the top of the mountain, Petrarch sat down and opened up his Confessions to read at random. And this is what he later wrote, and this is quote number one from a letter that he wrote in the 1330s. I opened the compact little volume, small indeed in size, but of infinite charm, with the intention of reading whatever came to hand. Now a chance that the tenth book presented itself. My brother, waiting to hear something of St. Augustine's from my lips, stood attentively by. I call him and God, too, to witness that where I first fixed my eyes, it was written, and men go about to wonder at the heights of the mountains and the mighty waves of the sea and the wide sweep of the rivers and the circuit of the ocean and the revolution of the stars, but themselves they consider not. I was abashed and asking my brother not to annoy me. <laughs> I closed the book, angry with myself that I should still be admiring earthly things who might long ago have learned from even the pagan philosophers that nothing is wonderful but the soul, which when great itself finds nothing great outside itself. Then in truth I was satisfied that I had seen enough of the mountain. I turned my inward eye upon myself, and from that time not a syllable fell from my lips until we had reached the bottom again. Now apparently this is the first time in recorded history that a man climbed a mountain just for fun. 
<laughs> which is kind of weird for uh, all of you who like to go hiking at Jones Gap State Park. Um, people didn't do that back then, apparently, but Petrarch went out, climbed a mountain, um, read a book up there, closed his eyes to the mountain, turned his eyes into his soul. And it's intriguing to think that the Renaissance began on this day. Some scholars say this is when the Renaissance began, when a paragraph in Book 10 of Augustine's Confessions awakened Petrarch to the importance of studying the human soul. Or how about the Reformation? Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. Well before he discovered the great doctrines of grace as he prepared his lectures on Romans and Galatians, Augustine's writings had already tilled the soil. John Calvin steeped himself in Augustine in the years after his conversion as a college student. From the first version of the Institutes written in his early 20s to the last edition in 1559, the quotes from Augustine grew and grew. It's rare to find a chapter or even a page in the Institutes that doesn't interact with Augustine. So look at quote number two. The opening statement of the Institutes is justly famous. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined with many bonds, which one precedes and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. Uh, that's all I'll read of that quote. That's the famous opening of Calvin's Institutes. But it's not original to Calvin. Uh, Calvin had, I don't want to say lifted it, um, but Calvin had found it in St. Augustine in his soliloquies and, um, and, and placed it as the foundation stone of his systematic theology of evangelical Christian belief. So... Um, <clears throat> In the Confessions, Augustine comes to know himself only as he comes to know God and vice versa. And in the Confessions, at the beginning of Book 10, Augustine writes, Let me know you, for you are the God who knows me. It sounds like the twofold knowledge that Calvin talks about. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of man are intertwined. And that's basically the whole of the Confessions. So thus, the Renaissance and the Reformation, the two great movements of thought in the 15th and 16th centuries that gave birth to the modern world, took their inspiration from Augustine. And this makes sense, since Augustine was the dominant figure in the medieval mind. Anselm drew his ontological arguments straight out of the Confessions. Peter Lombard's sentences are a series of comments on Augustine, and Aquinas wrote his Mount Everest of medieval theology, the Summa Theologia, with Augustine's works on one hand and Aristotle's works on the other. But let's go further. What about the Enlightenment? Didn't modern philosophy begin with René Descartes? Yes. And Descartes got his idea for, I think, therefore I am, out of Book 11, Chapter 26 of Augustine's City of God. And that other brilliant French mathematician of the 17th century, Blaise Pascal, wasn't he converted in an Augustinian revival in the Roman Catholic Church? When he jotted down at the beginning of his planned defense of the Christian faith, the pensée, that in the first part he would show the wretchedness of man without God, and in the second part, the happiness of man with God, wasn't he just summarizing Augustine's confessions? And there's that country priest and poet, George Herbert, the best Christian poet in our language, who mentioned in his will only one other book besides the Bible. You want to guess? Augustine's Confessions. And on and on it goes. When you look into Western thought from the Middle Ages 
into the modern world, it turns out that so much of it is a series of footnotes to Augustine. So it's hard to argue with the editors of Christian History magazine when they write that after Jesus and Paul, Augustine is the most influential figure in the history of Christianity. B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, came to see that Roman Catholicism and the Reformation were struggling like two children in the womb of Augustine's mind. Catholic thinkers still camp out on what he wrote sacramentally about baptism, and the Reformers camped out on what he wrote against Pelagius about God's grace. So Warfield said, and this is one of the most famous quotes about Augustine, The Reformation, inwardly considered, was just the ultimate triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. His soteriology over his ecclesiology, the Reformation was born out of his doctrines of grace, and Catholicism was born out of his sacramentalism. So who was this man who had this unusual measure of impact on the world? In many ways, he was a root out of dry ground. Augustine was born in the middle of the 4th century in North Africa in what today is the dusty country of Algeria. He had a godly mother, Monica, some siblings whose names we don't know, and a pagan father who died when Augustine was a teenager. He had a quick mind, and he excelled at school. He did the kinds of things that kids do, steal pears, hang out with friends, go to shows, and flirt with weird ideas and give himself up to the easy living of his permissive culture. He became a a professor of rhetoric, a teacher of the Roman literature, and eventually moved from Africa to Rome and Milan in Italy to to teach at the imperial court. But though outwardly he, he had become famous, inwardly he was miserable. In Milan, he came under the preaching of Ambrose, and at the age of 31, under a fig tree in a garden, he was wonderfully converted to Christ. Then he gave up his teaching, spent half a year reading and writing with friends, got baptized, returned to Africa, was ordained as a priest, and in his early 40s was elected the assistant to the bishop of the Church of Hippo. When the old bishop died the next year, Augustine took his place, and he remained the bishop of Hippo for the next 30 years. He died in his late 70s while the barbarians laid siege to his city. When he died, he left a library of his writings. He wrote over 115 books and pamphlets, 200 letters, and 500 sermons. Imagine writing over 100 books while fulfilling a demanding schedule of pastoral work. It boggles the mind how much pastors like Augustine, Calvin, and Jonathan Edwards were able to write. And they didn't even have computers. And then I have parentheses, maybe because they didn't have computers. (laughs) Augustine's two most important works are the Confessions, which he wrote around 397, and the City of God, which he completed three decades later. He started writing the Confessions in his early 40s, 10 years after his conversion, when he had just become the leader of the church at Hippo. People have called this the first autobiography in Western literature, and there's some truth to that, but it's a strange autobiography. Augustine isn't interested in giving us his whole life story. He's selective in what he tells. We don't get the names of his siblings or even of the woman who lived with him as his concubine for over 10 years. He opens up one incident in his life for the greater part of a book, and then he flies over nine years of his life in the next book. At the end of book 10, he stops writing about his life and devotes the last three books to meditating on the first verses of Genesis. 
The book is called Confessions, and that gives us the key to what Augustine intended it to be. Augustine chooses a rich word that has three meanings, all of which come into play. First, he means the book to be a confession of sin. He confesses his sins to God. He wants his people to know that their pastor is a sinner saved by God's grace and that he struggles with the same things they do. Second, positively, he means the book to be a confession of his faith. He's a pastor teacher, and he's telling the people what he believes. Third, the book is his confession of the glory of God. This confession is in the first line of the book, a quote from Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. That sets the tone for the confession of praise that runs through the whole book. Augustine writes his book as worship. He's grateful to God, and he's rendering back to God his confession of praise. So the book is a three-part confession of sin, of faith, and of praise to the glory of God. The autobiographical part comes into it because it's by reflecting on God's work in his life that Augustine can confess his sins, beginning with the original sin he inherited from birth, show how God revealed truth to him, and give glory to God for saving him. The good I do is done by you in me, and by your grace, he writes, the evil is my fault. There are some things that are unique here. When Augustine talks about his infancy in Book 1, he makes the first attempt to understand the inner workings of a baby's heart and mind in all of classical literature. Babies were just not that important in the ancient world. They needed to grow up quickly and become adults. But maybe even more striking is the unique authorial voice that emerges from the pages of the Confessions. It's Augustine's voice in the first person. And from the beginning to the end of the book, spanning some 350 pages, we overhear one side of a monologue as Augustine talks to his God. We soon make the discovery that every sentence in the book is addressed to God. This is prayer. And it could be that this is the longest prayer ever written down. Interspersed with Augustine's prayer are a vast range of Bible quotations, most of them by far from the book of Psalms. Augustine quotes the Psalms 40 times in Book 1 alone. So maybe we do have a dialogue here. Augustine talks to God, and God responds through his word. As we turn the pages, we overhear the inner workings of an intimate friendship between a man and his God. What happens is that Augustine comes vibrantly alive, so much so that we can easily forget that he's been dead for almost 1,600 years. He feels in some ways like our contemporary, for example, in the transparency of his emotions. We're awed by this man's incredibly brilliant and inquisitive mind. It works like a washing machine. We feel that we come to know this man. And this is very interesting because between the Confessions and Shakespeare's Hamlet, roughly 1,200 years later, there really are no characters in literature that we can come to know at this level. And even Hamlet is a shallow character next to Augustine. Beowulf is a wonderful fighter, but we don't come to know Beowulf deeply. Sir Gawain is an honest, loyal knight, but we don't come to know him deeply. What Augustine shows us is a human being fully alive, flesh and heart, 
and mind and soul in the presence of the infinite personal God who made the universe. And there's really no parallel for that in all of literature, either before the confessions or after it. The title of this session is The God of Augustine. And Augustine, if he were here with us now, would be quick to deflect the attention away from himself and place it on his God. In fact, it should catch our attention that the first five chapters of Book One are not about Augustine at all. They're a heap of questions addressed to God. Augustine burns with a desire to know the God he loves. There's a deep humility here, and paradoxically also a greatness. For what can expand the mind and soul of man more than God? Let me know you, for you are the God who knows me, he writes at the beginning of Book 10. Let me recognize you as you have recognized me. You are the power of my soul. Come into it and fit it for yourself. The knowledge of man, the knowledge of God are intertwined in all these pages. If we see a greatness in Augustine, it's only because he's a puny little man who has fallen desperately in love with the glory of God. Scholars argue about the structure of the confessions, but we can simplify it like this. Books 1 to 9 are about the first 32 years of Augustine's life, the climax of which is the conversion in the garden at the end of Book 8. Augustine ends the narration of this part of his life with the death of his his mother Monica at the end of Book 9. Book 10 fast-forwards to the present, 10 years later, when he's writing the book. He explores our vast caverns of memory, and confesses the sins he still struggles with. Books 11 to 13 are a meditation on the opening verses of Genesis 1. Maybe they're Augustine's attempt to show, now that he's become a Christian, how much richness he gets out of the Bible. Finally, let's look at the first paragraph, and this is quote number three, if you want to look there with me. Can any praise be worthy of the Lord's majesty? How magnificent his strength! How inscrutable his wisdom! Man is one of your creatures, Lord, and his instinct is to praise you. He bears about him the mark of death, the sign of his own sin, to remind him that you thwart the proud. But still, since he is a part of your creation, he wishes to praise you. The thought of you stirs him so deeply that he cannot be content unless he praises you, because you made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. The confession of praise and the confession of sin here are right up against each other, and the paragraph ends with the confession of faith, That is not just the thesis of the confessions, but the most famous line that Augustine ever wrote. He says that God created man to be a worshiper, and that man cannot be content unless he praises you because you made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. This is a book about the great God who made people in such a way that they will be miserable unless and until they find their joy and rest in him alone. We're worshipers by nature, and if we don't worship God who made us, we'll worship idols that will betray and crush us. 
Then over the next eight books, Augustine shows how this was true for him. And it's quite a ride. But that will be the topic of our next session.